Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. I am too, but I feel crappy. So if my voice sounds a little different today, it's, it's because of that. I'm being attacked by something that's definitely not in heaven, so it shouldn't be here on earth, right? Jesus said, your, your will be done, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He, he asked us to pray that. You know, he said he's not out to frustrate us. Remember that? When Jesus was teaching about the Father, he said, he's not out to frustrate you. He told us as earthly fathers not to frustrate our children. Well, if, if he told us as earthly fathers not to frustrate our children, then that means he as a heavenly father, who's a better father than we are, is not out to frustrate his children. And so if he asked us to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not so that we can just live our lives frustrated that it's not happening. It must be because it's his will and his plan that things would look on earth the way they do in heaven. Otherwise, that's a frustrating, useless prayer that you'll pray all of your life, never see happen, and die frustrated. And so if, if I honestly believe that there's no sickness in heaven, then I have to believe that as part of my covenant with him, it's not supposed to be on me on earth. And so that's why I'm a little frustrated with it. But it'll be all right. Um, we're going to take up our offering real quick. Yep. They, we have these signs now, so they remind me of things, so I don't forget them. Because <laughs> I just start going, and it's like a horse when it gets close to home. You can do what you want. It's just going to run. I'm that way. I get up here, and I, I get something in my mind, and next thing you know, I'm just running. So, um, yeah, we're going to take up our tithes and offering right now. Um, I just want to just speak a blessing over us as they do that. God, I, I thank you for blessing this house. I thank you for blessing your people everywhere. God, I ask that we would never forget that we're blessed to be a blessing. I pray for increase, God, in every area of our lives. I echo the words of John when he said, I pray above all things that your soul would prosper, that you would be in good health and prosper even as your soul prospers. And God, I pray for that. I thank you for that. I pray that we would be in good health and prosper even as our soul prospers. That we would not push off every promise of prosperity in the Bible to a spiritual prosperity, but that we would understand that you care about all of our needs, God, including our physical ones. And so I thank you for promotions at work, God. I thank you for new ideas. I thank you for um, opportunities that come, that you open doors that no man can shut, and you shut doors that no man can open, God. And I thank you for that. I ask that you would continue to bless us and always keep us mindful, God, of this fact, that we are blessed to be a blessing that we have so we can help those who have not. And that every good and perfect gift comes from you, our Father who is in heaven, in whom there is no shadow of turning. In Jesus' name, we thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Um, I know that, that, I think someone asked already, but is there anyone here very first time coming this week? Is your first time here? Awesome. Hey, hey, Hannah, how are you? Awesome. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> we, we're, really, we're really stoked that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, uh, while they're passing the offering, you can open them up to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It's a real familiar verse, but I want to talk a little bit different angle of it today. Um, everybody who has been a Christian for a while has heard this verse. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, flow the springs of life. Another version says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. In other words, everything in your life flows from what's in your heart. And so he asks you to guard it. Uh, The word, the Bible says that, and again, it's not a frustrating gospel. There's not things in the Bible that he puts in there so that he can be in heaven looking down and saying, Jesus, come look at this. They actually think they can do it. He's not up in heaven taunting us. He's not in heaven saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe they thought I was serious. I told them to guard their hearts, and look what they're doing. So foolish. If he asks you to guard your heart, it's because you actually are capable of guarding your heart. If he asks you to watch it with all diligence, that means you can diligently watch over what goes into your heart. Jesus was talking to some people one time, and he said, don't you know it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man that defiles him? What was he saying? Listen, things are going to come in all the time. You can't stop it. You can't stop. You live in the world. I promise you, getting born again did not place a bubble around you that kept you from experiencing what was in the world. 
But, but what you can do is you can guard the influence and the effect and the time that, it, that you allow the things that come at you to spend in your mind and eventually in your heart. So when it talks about take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Can I obey Christ while having this thought? Well, let's see, does it cause me to love God more? Does it cause me to love my neighbor as myself? If it doesn't cause me to do one of those two things, then I probably can't obey him while thinking this way. I should probably abandon it and not actually allow that to stay. Because if I allow it to stay long enough, eventually it'll work its way down into my heart and it will start to affect the way that I see things. The way that I see things will affect the way that I respond to things. You understand, like, in your whole life, nobody's ever made you angry. Oh, they make me so angry. No, they do not. They give you opportunity to expose what you're actually already carrying around inside of your heart. And if what you carried around was anger, then when they give you the opportunity, you become angry. Now, there is an anger that we're allowed to have, and that is towards sin. And not towards the people who committed it, but towards sin, towards the injustice of sin, because that's the only thing that the Father is eternally angry at, and we're called to be like Him. In fact, we're called to never stop being angry at sin, ever. Never, like, never let sin become this casual thing. It's like a rattlesnake. Like, if there's a rattlesnake in your room, you don't just kind of tolerate it and hope it stays in the corner. Like, you kill it. Because eventually, it's going to harm you. Sin's the same way. You don't entertain it and just let a little bit of it hang around, thinking that it's okay, I can control it, I can manage it. No, you can't. It's the same thing with anything you hold in your heart. Like, if you hold anger in your heart towards somebody, if you think you can keep that anger compartmentalized towards only the person that made you angry, you're fooling yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and that will seep out into every relationship that you have in some way. If you think that you can hold bitterness in your heart towards just somebody who offended you, who hurt you, if you think you can compartmentalize that and make it to where you only hold that bitterness in your heart and it only affects the person that you think is responsible for you being bitter, you're fooling yourself and it will leak and bleed into every single relationship and every single area of your life. And you will be less than 100% loving to everyone around you because you're allowing yourself to let bitterness have a place in your heart. That's why he said, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Now we can help each other, right? Like don't do stupid things. Like, don't, don't, don't do something stupid to somebody, and then when they get mad, be like, I didn't make you mad. That's your fault, man. You own that. Like, don't do that to each other. You can help each other out. But the point of the matter is, is honestly, you can't control what everybody around you is going to do in the course of a day. You can't control what you're going to see, what you're going to hear. You can't control the way people are going to respond to you, what they're going to do to you in the course of a day. But you can control one thing. Do I allow this into my heart? Do I allow this to become part of what I think and what I believe? Do I allow this to become part of who I am? And here's the thing. Anything that you give place eventually has to come out. It has to. Jesus used the example of food. He said, you know, food goes into a man, and then a man passes the food out. In other words, you can't just continually bring things in without there being some way of them being released. And for human beings, most of the time, what we store up in our heart comes out of our mouth comes out in our actions and so a good way to find out what's in somebody's heart is to watch the way they respond when they're given an opportunity so if you if you um if you have your bibles out already turn to luke chapter 7 verse 36 and we're going to read a story in here and i just want to talk about the idea of of how we respond and what we carry And I want to talk about this because as we talk about spiritual gifts, especially as we talk about the revelatory gifts, prophecy and word of knowledge, word of wisdom, those kind of things, the way that we see and the way what we carry in our heart is so critical that we understand and that we have his perspective and that we're not allowing other things into our heart and we're not having our vision skewed by things that have happened to us or things people have done to us. Because if we do, we will speak out of those things. And even if God shows us something, even if we see something, even if we know something about somebody, the way that we respond to that will be determined by what we carry in our heart. You can know something about somebody and respond to it in a totally wrong way. You could be completely right in what you said and completely wrong in the way that you said it or the way that you addressed it. And so the more we guard our heart, the more we understand this, the more we're aware of this even. Like being aware of this, like asking ourselves and questioning ourselves, like what's going on in my heart? When I'm in a situation, like like the best thing that you can do if you feel something start to come up in you, like anger, somebody does something, you're driving down the road. I use this one because this one happens to me all the time. It's a great way to check what's going on in my heart. 
and somebody, you know, switches lanes too fast in front of you or gets in front of you and then slows way down or something like that. Like, if what comes up inside of you you don't like, like, okay, in the moment, just keep your mouth shut. The Bible says a fool gives full vent to his wrath, meaning it's foolish. But more importantly than that, at some point, maybe not right then, and if it's your spouse that is struggling with this, maybe don't try to help them with it right then in that moment. But at some point, right, because then you might get a fool's full vent of their wrath at you. But at some point, it would be really good to get alone and just ask God, God, what, what am I, what's, what's going on in my heart that when something like this happens, when I'm given an opportunity to respond, what wants to come out of me looks nothing like what I would want to come out of me. Why is it that what comes out of me looks nothing like what I could picture coming out of Jesus in that same moment? That's convicting, right? But listen, we're not here for the gospel to make us feel better. Like, it'll make you feel better, but, but the way that it does it is not always going to make you feel good in the moment. We're here so that we can be transformed into the image of Jesus. We want to look more like Him than we do yesterday, today. I, I, it, having a gospel that just gives us a one day we'll go to heaven when we die kind of thing does nothing for the world around us. All we can do is pass them off what we have. So you tell them, pray this prayer, and then one day you'll go to heaven. Congratulations. So now there's a bunch of people walking around that have the Jesus vaccine because someone gave them a little bit of Jesus and gave them just enough to keep them from thinking they need the real thing. And so uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she's a sinner. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. It's a bold thing to say to him when you know what you've just been thinking about him. Say it, teacher. A moneylander had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You know that she's the only person I know of that's recorded of washing Jesus' feet. He looks at Simon and he says, Here you are, thinking to yourself that if I was a prophet... I would know who this woman is and I wouldn't let her touch me. Yet I'm the Messiah standing in front of you, the Pharisee, who's supposed to lead people to me and you didn't even offer me water to wash my feet when I walked in. Who doesn't know who's who? Be careful. Because pride will make you think that everything that you see is the only way that things can be seen. It'll make you think your perspective is the only perspective that's real. And it'll make you look around and judge other people who don't see things the way that you do as being wrong when the truth is is you may be the one who actually doesn't see. And the woman who's at his feet washing his feet with her tears actually knows who he is. And he actually knows who she is because he sees her not as a sinner, but he sees her as a daughter of God. And so maybe Jesus is the one in the room and the woman who's a sinner who the Pharisees were disgusted, was even in the house, who people probably got fired later for allowing her in, who they would never let touch them, and who they judged Jesus because he allowed her to touch him. Maybe those two were the only two in the room that actually knew who the other was. Yet, if we were to line people up and we were to look and say, who's the authority on who's who around here, we probably would pick the Pharisees and the disciples before we would pick the woman who 
was making a mess at his feet. He said to him, you've judged correctly. Turned to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive, God. That it's not stale, it's not stagnant. God, it's not a read it once and be done with it kind of thing. That it speaks to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that as, as I speak today, that you would open our ears to hear in our minds to understand, in our hearts to receive all that you have for us. God, that, that the seed of your word, your truth, would go into our hearts, the soil of our hearts, and it would produce fruit, God. That a world that doesn't know you would taste the fruit of our lives as we follow Jesus and know that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so this woman obviously understands who Jesus is. Otherwise, she has no reason to want to go to the Pharisee's house, weep at his feet. And this was a weird time because Jesus was the Christ who is and is to come. He hasn't died on a cross yet, but yet he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist sees him and declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he was there already to take away the sin of the world, and those who had eyes to see could see him for who he was, even though he hadn't died on a cross yet. And so this woman obviously understands who Jesus is, and she understands her need for a Savior. She understands her need for grace. And she hears that Jesus is at this house. And here's her opportunity to get to the one whom she understands is the one who's going to be the sacrifice and, and forgive her of her sins. And so she's got this bottle of perfume, and, and people say it would have been years' worth of salary. People have, have said all these different things about it, that it was the bottle of perfume that she would have saved to put on herself on her wedding night. All these different things about this bottle. All we know, it was a very expensive, costly bottle of perfume. It was all that she had, the best that she had. It was her gift. And she gets into the house, and she breaks this bottle of perfume on him. And then she kneels at his feet, and she's just weeping and kissing him. And she, her tears are falling on his feet. And she's wiping them with her hair. And she's washing the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees are watching this happen. And they say, I can't believe he's letting her touch him. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman she is and would never let her touch him. And I just, I want to make a, 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 a dichotomy here between the two. Because on one, you have someone who understands their need for grace. On the other, you have someone who doesn't think that they need a lot of grace. See, when Jesus told him this, this parable, he wasn't saying, you guys have less to be, for, it's going to cost less to forgive you. Like, it cost more for the person to forgive the 500 denarii than it did the 50 that wasn't even what Jesus was saying to him. Jesus was saying, it's the one who understands how much he's been forgiven. That's the one who's going to love more. Because you understand, it costs God the same to forgive the Pharisee as it did to forgive the woman who was at his feet. Everybody. That's why there's nobody in Christ that's any different. We're all the same. We're all equal because we all cost the same exact thing. We all cost the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not like, well, Jesus had to spend a ton of blood for you and just a little drop for you because you were so good. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that, that was the cost of your life. The price tag on your head and my head was his blood. And so he's trying to explain this to Simon. He's saying, listen, you don't understand how much you need to be forgiven. If you did, you might be at my feet kissing my feet. You might be washing my feet. You might be doing what the woman's doing, but because you don't understand how much you need to be forgiven. See, the Pharisees were self-righteous. Here's the problem. The problem with that is that they really were pretty good people. Jesus told people, he said, look, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't see the kingdom. They were good people. And there's a problem and a critical spirit can enter us if we're not careful when we live a pretty good life. 
Because what happens is pride gets in there because I know the life that I live and I know that I don't do these things and I know that I hold myself to a high standard. And so I become, if I'm not careful, I start to think more highly of myself than I ought. See, people think that if you talk about living a holy life, well, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. That has nothing to do with it. Has nothing to do with it. When you tell people, I try to follow Jesus Christ in my life, I actually live a holy life set apart to him. You know, people ask me all the time, so have you seen this movie? I'm not knocking movies, okay? Everyone has their own things about them. But people ask me, have you seen this movie? Have you seen that movie? My answer 99.9% of the time is no. And, and it's not because I think they're a sin. It's because when I have a few hours of time, I don't want to give my time to anything that I've seen on the screen. So I haven't gone to many movies. It's okay if you do. If that's what you do with your time, that's awesome. Good for you. You're just not holy like me. Uh, I can see that getting taken so out of context. No, but in, in, in all seriousness, listen. And, I, and, and so I've had people ask me, and I generally just say, no, I haven't seen it. But sometimes people ask me, why not? I just haven't had time. Oh, come on, I know you've had And they keep pressing the issue. Well, eventually you get to this place where you have to tell them, okay, here, you, if you really want to know why, here's why. Because most of that stuff, even movies that are rated PG, that's the world system saying there's just this much evil. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not okay with that. I don't want to open myself up to because I really do want to guard my heart and I value what I've put in. And I don't want to willingly allow things into my life that I'm going to have to renew my mind against one day. I don't want to do that. If I'm making, like there's enough out there you're going to have to renew your mind against just because you live in the world. Never mind willingly opening yourself up to it and choosing to allow it in. Again, go to all the movies you want to, but just make sure that you're not having to violate something inside of you to do it. Just make sure that you can actually say, I can follow Jesus while I'm thinking the thoughts that I'm thinking while I'm watching this. Makes me want to love Him more. Makes me want to love other people more. Just be careful with that. And that's not legalistic. But when you tell people that, and they ask you why, it's because I really want to live a holy life. I really want to live set apart. He said you should be holy as He is holy. That's the Word. That's in your Bible. I really want to live set apart. Don't sink down in your chair. Rise up to the stature and measure of Jesus. Like, what are we here for? Is it so that we can see how close we can walk to the line of sin and still call ourselves Christians? <coughs> or is it so that we can actually see how close we can get to that line, that standard of Jesus? And live our lives like Him so that when people see us, they see a representation of the Father. Because Jesus said, as the Father sent me into the world, so I also send you. And He came to represent the Father. And so, when you ask me that, and, and there's been times where I've said that to people and they've said, well, you know, just be careful you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Here's the thing. The only time that I'm in danger of doing that is if I think that it's because of my goodness that I'm living the way that I'm living. And I lose sight of the fact that it's His grace that not only set me free from, but empowers me and keeps me free Amen. from the things that I was once entangled in. That's when I think more highly of myself than I ought to. And that's where the Pharisees lived. Their righteousness was self-righteous. They were righteous people. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't see the king. He used them as the highest standard of humanly possible righteousness. What was he saying? There's a righteousness that doesn't come from you that you have to attain or you can't see the kingdom. Because if you could see it by being self-righteous, the Pharisees would see it. Because they live a pretty perfect life just about. The only problem is, is they forgot that they need the grace of God. They forgot how much they need to be forgiven for. And because they live self-righteous, they live with a fig leaf. And there's no way to cut off the voice of the accuser because anytime they made one mistake, that was where their righteousness ended. And the enemy had a way to come in and start making accusation against them and telling them, you're nothing but a sinner. You deserve hell. You're a sinner. You're a hypocrite. I can't believe... You did that. Why? Because their righteousness began and ended with them. Which meant if they made one mistake, their righteousness was gone in their minds. 
because the enemy could come in and make accusation against them. And that's what he lived to do. So what happened? So if I live with condemnation in my life, I look for other people that I can give condemnation to because I haven't guarded my heart. And what I've allowed in at some point is going to come out. And so when I live with a condemning voice of the accuser in my ear, I'll look to be a condemning voice of an accuser to other people because what I've allowed to come into my heart has to find its way out of me somehow. So it felt really good for Simon, who was a Pharisee, who was self-righteous. See, that had a fig leaf. You, remember, you know what I'm talking about when I say that? We've preached about that a few times. It was a righteousness or a covering that was made by themselves. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed and they had sinned, so they went and found fig leaves and they wrapped them around themselves. Yet when God came into the garden, they were still hiding. Why? Because they knew that the covering they had made wasn't good enough to stand before a holy God. It was okay in front of other men. The Pharisees loved to be in front of other men and compare their righteousness with that of other men. They loved to do that. And they took pride on what they didn't do and how they lived and what they didn't eat and what they didn't touch and where they didn't go and all those kinds of things. But in the end, all that was was a fig leaf because their righteousness was made with their own hands. It was made by human understanding. That's why when God came and found Adam and Eve, He made a covering. They already had a covering. The problem is God looked and said the righteousness, their covering that they have was made by their own hands and they understand that they can't stand before me. That's why they're hiding even though they're wrapped in fig leaves. So I'm going to make a covering with my hands so that they will understand that it's good enough. It's no longer self-righteousness. It's God's righteousness. That's what Adam and Eve received in the garden. A covering made by God sacrificing the, the blood of an animal, taking the skin and making covering for sin so that they could come before Him. Why? Because they would be able to stand before Him when they understood the covering for their sin was made not with their own hands, but by the hand of God. And the Pharisees lived with fig leaves. And they understood Their righteousness wasn't good enough. They were self-righteous. And because of that, pride and a critical spirit took place in their heart. So much so that the Messiah, the Messiah, the one they searched the Scriptures for, Jesus said, in vain you do search the Scriptures to find me, but these are they that point to me. What is he saying? He's saying, you guys, you're wasting your time trying to find the Messiah looking at the Scriptures when I'm standing in front of you because they're supposed to point you to me. And now here he is, the Messiah, is in Peter's home. He's in Peter's home. And all Peter can do is accuse him. Or Simon, sorry, the Pharisee. All he can do is accuse him. And make accusation against Jesus and make accusation against the woman. Why? Because Simon has no idea of the grace that he needs. And because he lives with his own righteousness that comes from his own deeds, he looks around and judges everybody else's righteousness based on their deeds rather than understanding his own need for grace and looking around and seeing other people as in need of the grace of God. Here's the problem when you become critical. You've set yourself as the standard That's what you do. It doesn't matter where your standard is. When you become critical, you set yourself as a standard. See, now, if I told all of you guys, it's wrong for you to go to any movies. Now, all of a sudden, I've made my life the standard, and I've become prideful in the way that I live, and I'm now judging you by whether or not you live your life to the same standard that I live mine. And a prideful, critical spirit always makes itself the standard and walks around measuring everybody else by how they measure up to them rather than making Jesus the standard. See, when I make Jesus the standard, I have no room to make accusation of anybody else because I see how far short of His glory I've come. And I see how much in need of His grace I am to live the life He's called me to live. But when I become prideful and I become critical, I make myself the standard and I walk around judging anybody who I think is less than me. And you know what's even worse? If there's somebody I think might be living better than me, I go into overdrive to find something wrong with their life because it's a challenge to me. So I have to find something wrong with them. I know this stuff because I know a guy who used to live that way. I won't mention any names, but he's got a cold today and he's standing on stage. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was that old guy. He had to die. He was really prideful and arrogant. So, the woman, on the other hand, comes in, understanding her need for grace. She's able to see Jesus for who he is. And she takes her gift and she uses it on the body. Jesus said, when she poured that on me, when she poured her gift on me, she poured it on my body to prepare it for burial. And then at the end of this story, Jesus said something really interesting. He said, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, this is from a different gospel. Two of the three gospels record this. Um, um, Luke doesn't, but Matthew and Mark both record that Jesus said this at the end. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. So this is what I want us to understand. There's a pattern for how we should live that we can find in this story. And there's a reason Jesus said this story. He didn't say that about very many stories. Read your Bible and try to find how many times Jesus said, what happened here today will be repeated wherever the gospel is preached. Why? Because I think this is an essential of the gospel, and if we get this, we'll get so much right, and if we miss this, we'll get so much wrong. What was he saying? Let's boil it down to a nutshell. If you stay in a place of understanding your need for grace, and you do what you do out of love, your gift will be used upon the body for good. If you can understand your need for grace and you do what you do out of love, then you'll use your gift on the body of Christ the same way that woman did. If you don't understand your need for grace and you're not walking in love, you'll become critical and find something wrong with every person around you. Even if you have a gift, you'll use it wrongly. And it'll be something that tears down rather than something that builds up. I have a whole nother section of here that I'm, no, I probably won't get to it today. Right, so I'm just going to close up with this, and then Tom's going to come up, and, and we're going to take communion. Tom has something he's going to talk about at time for communion. But, you know, honestly, just being truthful, the holier you live, the more susceptible you are if you're not depending on Jesus to become critical and prideful. And that's why I want to talk about this with us, especially as we're talking about spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts, is because there's a danger that you will begin to see the way that you live and you'll become so aware of it that it becomes something you notice when you don't see it in other people. And rather than understanding their need for grace, you'll start to look down on them with disdain or you'll become critical of them. And you'll begin to think, well, if I do this and I paid the price for this and I sacrificed and I gave up this and I, 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 why can't they? Without understanding that it was not because of your own good works, it was the grace of God inside of you that only, not only set you free but empowered you to continue to live free. That's what grace is. Grace is not this band-aid for sin. Grace is not this thing that you say, well, I can do this because there's grace. Grace sets you free from and keeps you free from sin. It actually changes you so that you have the desires of God inside of your heart. That's what God said. He said, I'll give you the desires of your heart if you find your delight in me. In other words, if he's the one that I love and find my delight in, then he said he would give me the desires of my heart, meaning the desires that are in my heart will be ones that he gave me. And so I'm not living this perpetual life of fighting against myself. I'm actually living out the life that he's placed inside of me. But it's only because of grace. And if I ever lose sight of that, I'll start to think more highly of myself than I ought to. And I'll become critical of people. And, and next week we're going to talk about the rest of this stuff. But listen, when you start to understand that God wants to speak to, through, to, to people through you, when you start to understand that you can hear his voice, the way that you see the Father and the way that you hear Him speak to you and the voice that you hear on a regular basis is going to be the one that you speak out of when you speak to people. 
That's why Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and know my voice. He said, a stranger they just will not follow because they don't know him. You ever been in a crowded room and you hear the voice of your wife or your husband or one of your good friends and they call you a name that anybody in the room could have been called. They call you bro or dude or hun or babe or whatever it is that your, that your friends or your, your, or your significant other calls you. And, and if a stranger says that same word, you don't even turn your head and look. Why? Because you don't know their voice. You hear what they're saying, but you don't know their voice. But all of a sudden, you could be in the same crowded room and you could hear the voice of the one that you love say your name or say the nickname they call you or hear your best friend say, bro. And all of a sudden, you turn and look. Why? Because you know their voice. How do you know their voice? You spent time with them. You talk with them. You have relationship with them. You understand not only what they say, but you understand what it sounds like when they say it. And Jesus said, my sheep will will hear my voice. They know my voice. The voice of a stranger, they won't follow. Listen, that doesn't mean that a stranger is saying, go here and do this. He's saying a a lot of times following the stranger's voice just looks like a line of thought. He comes with an accusation and pretty soon because you're not guarding your heart and because you're not meditating on whatever is good, upright, truthful, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise, of good report, you start meditating on that accusation, that condemnation. See, in that moment when Peter, is, when Simon the Pharisee opens his mouth and condemns Jesus and condemns the woman, he's only echoing the voice of condemnation that he's been hearing in his head all day long. And so when he speaks, he sounds just like the one he's been listening to. Jesus said we would hear and know his voice. So when we speak, our voice will sound like and be like the one we've been listening to. So you've got to be really careful that you guard your heart. You guard what you allow in. You guard what you allow yourself to meditate on and think on. A lot of times the, the enemy will, will come in, especially a lot of times with people, it's through like past offense. Like things that have been done to you to hurt you. And it just, it just kind of bring that up and remind you of what was done to you. And there's no life there. There's no life there. But, but if we're not careful, we find ourselves rehashing that hurt. We start thinking about what was done to us. And we start down this path. And pretty soon we have accusation in our heart against those people. We have judgment in our heart against those people. And it's just this line of thinking that we're following his voice. It's not like he's over there going, Roy, come through the door. It's just this line of thinking a lot of times. I mean, he may do that sometimes. You know, I don't know. I don't hear his voice. But, but it's this line of thinking that he tries to get you to follow. And pretty soon you're following the voice of the accuser. And there's no life there. And you find yourself rehashing that stuff and those hurts. And you're placing blame. And, oh, you can't believe they. And if they hadn't. And, oh, I can't believe I trusted. And they. And all these things start coming. And now you've got a fresh heart full of accusation and condemnation and anger and bitterness. And then all of a sudden you come across a woman who you know lives in sin. And you see her doing something that you don't understand and you open your mouth and all that comes out is everything that you've let in. (coughs) Or you could be like Jesus. You could be like Jesus who understood very well who the woman was even beyond the things that the Pharisees knew. Because he didn't see her as a sinful woman. He saw her as a daughter of God whose sins were about to be forgiven. And he speaks to her for who she really is, not for who the world says that she is. Not for who the one with the heart of condemnation and anger and accusation says that she is. And that's what we need to become, you guys. We need to become people who walk around with our hearts so full of the knowledge of our need for grace that when we open our mouths, grace comes out. If I stay in a place of my understanding, I need your grace, God. I can't do this without you. God, I'm so, that's why I was talking about this morning, like getting up in the morning and thanking him. God, I thank you that before I did the first thing right, you looked at me and you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And you loved me and called me your own. And Jesus, you said that you're not ashamed to call me your brother and your friend anymore. That I'm not a slave. And you no longer call me a slave, but you call me a friend. And that you're not ashamed of me. You said you would declare and confess me before the Father. And all of a sudden, I'm waking up thinking these things. When I go out into the world, even if somebody does something wrong, how can I help but respond with what's in my heart? 
because I've already decided before somebody does something what I'm going to walk around carrying. So when I open my mouth, the only thing that can come out is what I'm carrying in my heart. And if we're going to be people who declare the heart of God, we have to be people who make sure that we are careful about what we're allowing into our heart because what's in our heart is going to come out of our mouth and come out through our lives. So be careful and guard your heart above all else with all diligence for from it, from it flow the issues of life. You can have an amazing gifting, but if you allow bitterness, anger, pride, arrogance, critical any of that stuff in, that gifting will be tainted and it'll actually be something that's used as a weapon of the enemy rather than a weapon of God. And it won't be used for the benefit of the body because you forgot your own need for grace and you've stepped out of love. God, I thank you for that. I thank you, God, that, that, that we can be like, like the woman at your feet, God, that we won't be found making accusation when your feet are there to be kissed. We won't be found making accusation when our gift can be used on your body. That we won't be found being critical. God, I thank you that our righteousness does not come from ourselves. That you made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you that our righteousness comes through Christ Jesus alone. It's by grace that we're saved, God. It's by the righteousness that we received as we became new creations in Christ that we lived. God, so we don't have to stand trial every day with the enemy for our actions. You stood trial once for all of ours. And that we can walk around with the intimate knowledge that you loved us and that you graciously called us and saved us, God. And we can walk around with our hearts full of that so that whenever there's a need, our response is always grace. It's always love. It's always you, God. It always reflects your heart. We look like you when we respond in situations. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you that when we miss it, rather than beating ourselves up and questioning our own Christianity, God, that we fall on our face in front of you and say, God, I thank you that I even know that I missed it. You guys, real quick, you realize you can do that. Like if you miss it, that, the fact that you know that you miss it means that your heart's changed because there was a time where you responded that way naturally. There was a time where your natural instinct was to do the thing that you're now grieved about. And so even then when you miss it, and I'm not saying go out and miss it for that sake, but if you do, rather than accusation and condemnation, all you do is get before the Father. God, I'm so thankful that you're actually changing my heart. The things that used to be natural to me now hurt me. I used to be able to give a sharp word and cut somebody with it and think highly of myself for it. Now if I do something like that, I can't even sleep until I go make it right. And it just shows that you're changing my heart, God, that I really am being changed by the gospel, that I really am who you say that I am. And Father, I'm so thankful that you're changing me and that you're fathering me. God, I thank you that you're never through with me, God, that I'm always being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. I thank you for See, and all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a condemnation becomes something that pushes you even further into the heart of God. And the enemy has no voice because the voice of condemnation is shut up as we turn and begin to turn it into thankfulness to the Father. Every time He accuses you, you can do that. Every time He accuses you, every time your heart hurts because of something that you did, listen, repent, make it right if you can. Don't do it anymore. All those things are awesome, but I'm saying rather than wallowing in in self-condemnation and self-loathing, rather than questioning, I can't believe I did that. How am I, am I, am I even a Christian? Instead of any of that stuff taking place in your mind, you can actually allow that to, to prove to you that you really are being changed because it actually hurts my heart to do things that used to be natural and easy. And it's proof that I'm no longer the man that I was and that He's changing me and that I'm more like Him now than I ever was. So God, I just thank You for that. I ask that we be so mindful of this, God, as we use the giftings that You've placed in our lives, God. So that the things that we do could be stories that could be told wherever the Gospel's told. And I just thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Tom's going to come up now. We're going to receive communion together as a family. It's a good message <clears throat> to have at a time that we're going to celebrate communion. When you think about what the word communion means... We tend to, as human beings, sort of just uh, assemble and walk around together in groups, groups that we recognize, groups that, that we feel comfortable around, groups that we understand. 
And I mean, it's just a, that's a natural thing. God understands that. It's part of what human being human is. But we're we're more than human. <laughs> we're we're superhuman. <laughs> you think back about when this when this first started. It was actually two weeks ago, April fourteenth, a couple of weeks ago. Was uh, that's what that is the feast of Passover, and this this all originated with that feast. And you think about that feast of Passover, <clears throat> when the children of Israel were told to every family go back in your tent, take a lamb, kill it, eat it, and if there's if there's anything left over to be burned, everybody's heard this story before, right? And the message of that was, when the children of Israel, and they, they took the blood and they put it on the lentil and the doorposts, when they walked through the walls of blood, what is that an indication of? Gave you a clue. Covenant. It was a covenant thing. Walking through walls of blood was the covenant, one of the covenant steps. And every family that walked through the walls of blood, what, when they walked through as a group of people, when they, came, when they entered the tent... When they walked out of the tent, they walked out as one lamb. They represented one lamb. But it was bigger than that because when you think, okay, so you had this family, and this family was a part of a tribe. It was a part of the tribe of Dan, of uh, David or, the, or Levi or Simon or, or, or some tribe. So they're part of something bigger. But then you look, you step back further, and you say, "No, they're all a part of the sons of Israel." And when they walked out of the tents the next day, and it says that they walked out, it was, it was from then that they left Egypt and walked out into the wilderness. They didn't walk out as the family of X, who was of the tribe of X. They walked out as the children of Israel. They didn't all come out and start walking their own directions, their own, their own places. They walked out as one people. Even though there were a lot of different lambs represented going through there, it was one people. And when I think about this in, in, in terms of the message uh, uh, that, that Roy was giving, we, we kind of give a lot of messages about what, what communion means. But one of the things that I think we really are going to try, we need to get a hold of, we need to get a grip on, is that we're part of something much bigger than what's going on in this room right here. What's going on in this room is awesome. It's awesome because of who God is. And because of people who have gotten a hold of some things that God is doing with them. But what's going on in this room is not all that's going on in Greenville. And it's not all that's going on in South Carolina or the United States or the world. God's doing something amazing. And it's coming and it's going to get bigger and bigger. And I've heard this for years, scoffed about it actually, to be honest, years ago when people first talked about the things that were coming, a new revival, a new awakening, whatever word you want to use, that's not just going to be here this generation and gone the next generation. It's a lasting revival that will last until Jesus comes back. Think about that. I'm not laughing anymore about that. I'm seeing some things happening, but in order for that to be a lasting revival, the body of Christ needs to know we are all one. And this communion that we're taking here today is all represented. This is all supposed to be one loaf, so that when we walk out of here, we're one loaf. But there's a lot of loaves. There are a lot of people walking out of their church buildings today who have taken communion who said, we are one. And the thing that sets us apart from all the rest of the world is this tie that brings us to the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, the thing we're talking about, <clears throat> how we need to be connected with, with what the Holy Spirit's doing, or it's not going to work. This group of people, however amazing we are, is not going to be able to pull anything off by ourselves. 
But when we are together, when we are unified, oh my gosh, the world is going to see something absolutely amazing. So, you know, the children of Israel, again, they walked out. They walked out as one. Jesus, here's another story that I was thinking about earlier this morning, um, before I even knew Roy was going to talk about this. Jesus talking about John the Baptist. It says, you know, the, John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, hey, we've been kind of watching what you're doing, and we're, we have a question. Are you the one, or should we look for somebody else? Now, John knew that Jesus was the one, but he's confused because John thought Jesus was going to act like John acted or like John expected Jesus to act, which was his ministry, John's ministry was call people to repentance. And when he said, my cousin's coming, he didn't call him his cousins. He said, the guy's coming after me. He's a lot better than I am. And his winnowing fork is, get, <clears throat> is in his hand and he's going to clean the threshing floor. He's going to draw in what belongs to him, and he's going to burn the rest. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to bring judgment, fire from the sky, you know, burning flesh, the whole thing. Jesus didn't do that. He's walking around with sinners. He had, one of the guys he's walking with is a tax collector, one of the most hated kinds of people in all of Israel. He's part of the group. He's one of the chosen guys. John the Baptist is calling out the political leaders in the land, the king himself, because of some wrong that he was doing. Jesus is walking around with him. He's calling out the religious leaders of the people of Israel and calling them hypocrites, calling them whitewashed tombs. What in the heck is Jesus thinking of (laughs) according to the way John the Baptist's people were? They didn't understand it because that's not how their leader, John the Baptist, was acting. And so Jesus says, you go back and tell John what you see. And I'll give you a few examples. You see healed people. You see people set free. You see blind eyes being able to see. Tell him those things. And remind him again the thing I said when I started my ministry. This is what God sent me to do. I'm doing it. So they walk off. And so then that's this group. Then Jesus walks over this group over here and says, just so you wipe the smug look off of you guys' faces, what did you go out to see in the wilderness when you looked at John the Baptist? Because some of you were John the Baptist followers before you started following me, including you, Cousin James and cousin, (laughs) Cousin John. You guys, that's how you guys started. So don't get all uppity about what I just said to these guys. Because John the Baptist, there was nobody who was greater than John the Baptist of all of the women who who gave birth. Who the sons of... How how do you put that? That didn't sound right. (laughs) John John the Baptist of all the women. No, there's something definitely wrong about that. All right, so, but, but he says, he says, if every human being, let's just put it an easy way, there's nobody greater. There was nobody greater than John the Baptist, but the least, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So, but he gave a, a pretty, a pretty interesting, amazing uh, thing about John the Baptist. He was his friend. He loved him, and he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he said he got frustrated with people say, you're looking at John the Baptist. His ministry was different than mine. You said, I mean, he, he, he fasted and, and, you know, gave up a lot of stuff, lived in the, in the wilderness, and you said he's got a demon. I came eating and drinking. You said I have a glutton. And you guys are like children calling out in the, in the, you know, in the marketplace. He said, well, we played a dirge, and you didn't mourn. We sang, we played a flute, and you didn't dance. You're not dancing to our tune. You're not being like we want you to be. And Jesus said, be like what you're supposed to be, because there's one spirit, but there's a whole bunch of different representations of how that looks to people. Don't be thinking that because we look different than the church down the street, 
that we have an edge on anything. We're just different. And God bless all of the pastors who've, who've called and all the people who serve and everybody who's taking communion today and say, we want in on this deal. That we're a part of the covenant group that in the end times is going to flood the earth with an amazing thing. This just stuff I've I've had to learn. I've had to, you know, get a, get my head around. We say, well, this this preacher, all he preaches is, he just preaches salvation. That's all. Salvation. Over and over and over again. Salvation, salvation, salvation. This preacher over here, it's all about prosperity. This guy over here, it's, it's judgment of God. This guy over here, it's something like this. It's everybody has their own thing. You know why that is? Because way back in the beginning, when God told the children, told people to scatter and uh, and, and just fill the whole earth, multiply, they wouldn't do it. They're afraid to do it. After the flood, they said, we ain't doing that. We're going to come together. We're going to stay put. We're going to build a tower. So God forced them to. He confused their languages. He confused the way they said things. But you know what? Nobody invented any new things. Nobody said, nobody invented a new tree or a new kind of a rock. They just called it something else. It was all the same. So when the, when the church, you know, God actually said, made this amazing statement. You heard me say this. I try not to be too long-winded here. He said that if the people are united, there's nothing that they can't do that they want to do. So then when Satan saw that the church on Pentecost were together, united, he said, there's nothing these guys are going to be able to do that they can't do. Because when the when the children of Israel or when the when the people came out, <clears throat> began to speak, everybody hearing them in their own language, something was reversed. Now all of a sudden they're talking different languages, but people understand them. And but but Satan was reminded of something, and he said, "I'm gonna this is this is a useful thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna divide the people by dividing their language." Nobody's going to have anything new to say. They're just going to call it something new. So, and it's worked. That's why we have denominational. That's why we have, that's why we have this preacher teaching that and that preacher teaching something else. They're all teaching the same message, but they're divided because we're divided. And we just, we, we really need to, I, I know this sounds like ecumenalism, and it's not. I'm not talking about compromising things that aren't part of the gospel. I'm talking about people who understand the gospel and it's a lot more people than we think. And we're part of that big deal. So when we have communion this morning, I'm not sure how to, how to do this exactly. I'm kind of winging it in case you wonder. When we do this this morning, let's just remember that. Let's just remember that we're part, when we take this little piece of bread, we're part of a loaf. But in that loaf, how many, how many grains of wheat did it take to make that loaf? How many grapes did it take to make the, the wine or the, the grape juice, whatever it is that we're, we're, we're eating? It's not about the numbers or the individuality. It's the symbol of we're part of something huge. And God says, I want Jesus in his prayer to, to, to the Father at that time. And at, and at the end of John, the book of John, he says, he says my, my prayer to you, Father, and to everybody that comes, uh, is coming after these guys, I want them to know that they're one, just like you and I are one. You have to understand the magnitude of that statement. Jesus said, he and the Father are one. That was... That was a. People wanted to stone him for that statement. They were one. They were in covenant. The three were in covenant. And Jesus was then saying, I want to bring you guys into the same thing. And everybody who believes on my name after this are one with the Father. That's what this is about unity, oneness, communion. That's what it means. So Jesus says, When you do this, Remember me. Remember what I wanted. Remember what I, I, that, I, that this was the, the goal to bring onto this planet a new, a new 
group of people who it, it's okay to have to be a church in this group and a church in that building over there and a church over there as long as we understand we're not separated by anything except by local fellowship and relationships but we need to expand that and get bigger we can join other churches without having to change you know all the legalities involved and all meet in one building and all these other things we're all one we have to start understanding that because i believe this revival is coming and i tr and i just truly believe that that's part of what this is about So Jesus got together with the guys, he, and he, he passed that bread around. He broke it, just like his body was going to be broken. And he passed the pieces all around and said, take this and eat it. And in the covenant sense, what, the, what was happening, what always happened and when two people came into the covenant, they would feed each other. And what they would be saying was, if I, if I was sitting next to Larry, I'd be, I would actually feed Larry this bread and say, Larry, <laughs> inside of you, I'm putting me. And then Larry would feed me, and he'd say, inside of me, I take Larry. It's the covenant things were always an indication of the unity. That's what, that's what it was always, always about. And what he was saying remarkably, Jesus saying, take this, this is my body. Take it into yourself. Take me into you. Let me live in you, and you live in me. I'll become sin. You become righteousness. Let's have a covenant exchange. And you're going to hear the Holy Spirit. My Father, I've walked around my whole life. This is what Jesus was saying. My whole life I've walked around hearing the, the voice of my father, the things I taught, the things I did, the things I said. I didn't say any of it without the Holy Spirit. We need this Holy Spirit. And he said, now that's coming. When I leave, it's better for you because the Holy Spirit's coming. Let's take this thing and recognize that when we do this, it's all, we're in each other and we're in God amazingly. And we're in the whole universal church. There is no separation when we enter this communion pact. Go ahead. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you broke your body for us. I thank you that when the children of Israel ate of that lamb and they walked out of them, out of their, their tents that morning, there wasn't one feeble, one weak person. And your word says that if we don't recognize, that's why some of us are, are sick. We don't recognize what it is to be in you what it is that you, that, that the promise of salvation wasn't just our spiritual salvation. It was for, the, for us here on earth. I pray, Father, like you prayed, for the unity of your church. Not this church, your church, the whole thing. You prayed for it. You wanted it. You wanted to see us all in you, just as you are, are in the Father. It must be an important thing. Forgive us, Father, for being exclusive with your body. Help us, Father, just to begin to see we're one part of a huge thing that you're trying to do on the earth. Thank you, Father. So go ahead and take this. He said, take and eat, take and drink. This represents the forgiveness that we have. And it's when he, it's, he, he shed his blood. And the church kind of gets this now. They, they have a harder part with the body, but they get the blood part. 
He shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to. He died so that we could be forgiven, all of us, forever and ever and ever. It's a done deal. So when we take this as part of the communion understanding, it's still, we're all united in him, united by his blood. His blood covers it all. Old things are passed away. We're new creations, new creatures, a kind of, a kind of being that's never been seen on the earth before. If you look outside that door, if you walk down the mall, sometimes I look and I think, how do you know? How would I, how would I be able to tell? Whether if, if you had specialized it, you could see who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. You can't tell. Not, when, not a lot of times when you see people out there, just the way they behave, the way they react, the way I react, you can't tell. It's got to stop. He shed his blood so we could have life, an abundant life, a different kind of life, renewed life. So let's just take, the, take this drink. And thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that I'm forgiven. That doesn't make me better than anyone else. It should give me a humility of knowing of all that you've done for, for me to change my life, to make my life worth something. I pray, Father, that we all understand that and they will all know the value as Roy said of our life the value is based on what it cost to purchase it and that's more than we can imagine and we can we can spread that value out there in the world we can give of ourselves and make other uh, other disciples just as Jesus asked us to do thank you so much for this service Thank you for everyone involved. Thank you for your communion. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you so much, Father, for changing our lives and bringing us into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.